Okay, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have an amazing guest with you tonight. The, our last video got taken down off YouTube. I don't know why, but he was nice enough to come back on. But we did our other show about a year and a half ago. But his, his new book's still brand new. It's called uh, Beyond Esoteric. It's out of the Esoteric series. And who I have with me is the adventurer, world traveler, uh, uh, Brad Olson. He's author of 10 books, including three in the Esoteric series, Modern Esoteric, Future Esoteric, and the new release, Beyond Esoteric. Um, uh, an award-winning author, book publisher, and event producer. His keynote presentations and interviews have enlightened audiences at Contact in the Desert, UFO Mega Conference, 5D events, and dozens of radio, including Coast to Coast, Ground Zero, and Fade to Black, and television shows, including Ancient Aliens, America on Earth, Beyond Belief, and Mysteries of the Outdoors. Brad is the founder and co-producer of the How Weird Street Fair in Soma's neighborhood of San Francisco. The Chicago native's esoteric writing continues to reach a wide variety of audience. Why continues breaking ground in journalism, public speaking, illustration, photography, and I want to give him a warm welcome and thank him for coming back on. Brad, how are you? Hey, Robert, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back on the Typical Skeptic. You ask great questions, and it's a wonderful show. And looking forward to uh, expanding our conversation from last time. What what I wanted to get into, and and I was going to wait till last to ask this, but um, we didn't talk about it last time, and I I, I, re I really wanted to bring it up, like. I heard you talk about it in another interview was like um, when you went to Antarctica and it's like possibly the ship being under the ground and how the Ark of Gabriel ties into it, which is all pretty interesting. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, to start with, the Ark of Gabriel is described similar to the Ark of the Covenant, that it has incredible power, some kind of uh, electrical discharge as described in the Bible with the Ark of the Covenant, that uh, if mishandled would be able to electrocute people or kill them, uh, a whole bunch of power. So the backstory was that about 10, 12 years ago, remember when we heard in the news that there was a stampede at Mecca of pilgrims that were hundreds were, were trampled to death? Yeah. And just before that, there was a big construction accident where dozens of people died and a crane collapsed. There were pictures of that right near the Grand Mosque where the uh, very sacred Kaaba, the Black Cube, is right in the center of the pilgrimage location. Well, the backstory was, uh, the cover story, I should say, was that the there was just a construction accident and then a, a stampede that killed all those pilgrims. But what uh, esoteric researchers have come to find out is that it was really the uncovering of the Ark of Gabriel. And it too had these supernatural powers and when uncovered, it created an explosion type of event, which took down the construction crane and killed those dozens of people. Then they tried to uh, have at it again a few weeks later and it also discharged a large amount of energy that killed uh, those hundreds of pilgrims. So the Saudis didn't know what to do. They couldn't have this at their most sacred site. And uh, turns out that the Russians and the Patriarch Krill of the Russian Orthodox Church had an idea how to move it. And they were successful in moving it. And they brought it out to the... Uh, port of Jeddah, 
which is in the Red Sea. And this much is known historically and in the media accounts that a Russian convoy came there and they picked up this cargo and they headed down to Antarctica with it. Uh, interestingly, Patriarch Krill was not far behind. He went and met the Pope who was on tour at the time in Cuba on his way down to Antarctica. And that's that right there is very rare. That right there should tell you something's up because those two historically have never gotten along. Uh, they're very much rivals between the two Christian churches, the two largest of the Christian churches. But nonetheless, they met and perhaps Pope Francis had some words of advice on what to do with this Ark of Gabriel. And interestingly enough, they brought it to the old German base in New Schwabenland. And it's reported that they found uh, one of the unused bunkers in base 211, the Nazi holdout there. And that's where they stashed it. And Patriarch Krill goes down then just a short while later to consecrate a little chapel for uh, the Russians. <laughs> in and Antarctica? He, he, in Antarctica. And this chapel is about the size of your walk-in closet. So it really didn't make much sense for him to be going down there to do all that for a small, tiny little chapel. But on the other hand, maybe he needed to consecrate the entrance to where they left the Ark of Gabriel so it would not create any havoc. And so that's where the story ends. And then Krill came back. And uh, as far as I know, it's still down there and not killing dozens of pilgrims. <laughs> well, I have a question. Like, what, what do you think is exactly going on in Antarctica? I mean, do you think that there's like maybe a Nazi stronghold still down there? I mean, you were there, but it's, it seems like from what the stories you told that it's very hard to get your eyes on anything because it seems like number one, it's like such a vast land. And number two, it's so hard to travel around anywhere. And number three, nobody has any clue what's going on down there. Am I correct about all three of those? Yeah, you are correct about all three of those. It's a very vast continent, the fifth largest continent in the world. Travel is very expensive. If you want to go from point A to point B on a custom itinerary, you can do it, but you're going to have to pay a pretty hefty price. And because it's so remote, it's really hard to get a real barometer on what's going on. It's about as easy to tell what's going on in the moon or on Mars as it is in Antarctica these days because so few people are there as direct eyewitnesses and so few are in these places where there might be down craft or po pyramids poking through the ice or uh, evidence for antediluvian civilizations dating all the way back to Atlantis. There's a lot of people that feel that Atlantis is uh, the Antarctic Peninsula and it's frozen underneath the ice. So what is underneath there, it's kind of like the deepest depths of the ocean, Robert. It's the last great geophysical areas of the earth that have yet to be fully discovered. Yeah, you know, it was funny. I was listening to Jimmy Church last night, and uh, he had on um, Debbie Ziegelmeyer, and she just wrote a book on how UFOs and USOs are colonizing our, our seas, and she made a good point. Uh, what I was getting to, she's it's something kind of like what you just said. She said that our seas are less known than, like, our moon and Mars. You know what I mean? Like, we have no clue what's going on underneath us in the ocean, you know, because it's, like, so under, undiscovered. Would you agree? 
Yeah, I totally agree. And, and just keep in mind that Earth is essentially an ocean planet. We're covered with 71% of the surface area is water. Only 29% of the land masses. And then some of those land masses like Greenland and Antarctica are completely covered in ice. So the real inhabitable there, zones are very few. And aren't there pyramids like carved in in Antarctica? I think I heard you say about that. Like it looks like, it, it's not for sure, but it looks like there's pyramids carved in something down there, right? Or, well, there, there are some mountains that are very symmetrical, four-sided. One in the Shackleton range that a lot of people have seen the pictures of. And so I did some mo my own digging. I did not go to the site. It's quite remote. But I talked to a tour group that goes to the uh, tallest mountain in Antarctica called Vincent Massif, because a lot of mountain climbers who have gone up to the top of Everest and Mount McKinley, they want to summit the highest point in all seven continents. So it's a big business for them to take people down there and, and climb this mountain. And as they're going from Union Glacier, which is the stopping point after flying in from Puentes Arenas, Chile, at the very southern tip of South America, they'll fly over the Shackleton Range and see this, this pyramid shape, this four-sided pyramid. And so I asked them, uh, do you think it's uh, from a past civilization and have any intel on that? Because you've seen it so many times. And uh, the, the main lead tour guide who's in charge of these trips said, well, we fly over it a lot, but we've never gone down to land on it or climb it or take any samples or determine if it's if it's human made or not <clears throat> but they call it a nun attack which is just an attractive mountain that pokes through the ice so i think the jury's really out on that one uh if we if i had the funding and, and perhaps a a film crew i'd love to go down there and do those samples and test it as well as go to the german new Schwabenland area and see if uh indeed our military in the late 1950s nuked the site because oh, you think uh, that's what, Geiger counters would still that, pick up on that. Is that what happened? Do you think Admiral Byrd went down there with nukes? Like, and like, there's so many, dis, there's so many dis stories that are kind of like dissenting, like, um, you know, they say that he was ran in by UFOs and he got, you know, his squad got taken out. Then I heard there was one where he went into inner earth and he encountered some kind of beings. And they said that, you know, they, they showed him the inner earth and, and, and then he came back and wrote him. There's so, I mean, like, what's the story that you think is most reliable? Well, the nuclear episode is, it's called Operation Argus. And it actually happened uh, about 12 years after uh, Admiral Byrd was down there. And wow. it is still one of the only nuclear bomb tests. And I do cover it in-, in uh, Beyond Esoteric. North America. Yeah, that, that is basically where they did the testing was right outside of the New Schwabenland claim, which is directly south of South Africa. If you know where it is on the map, this is the German map of the claim. And right on the bottom here are the, the uh, Schumacher Ponds. That's where the original party landed and then went out and discovered and got into the tunnel network and created Base 211, also known as the New Berlin Base. And that's what Admiral Byrd was going down to confront in 1946. 
and the Battle of High Jump commenced after they had sent a couple sorties over to bomb some of the buildings they saw on the surface. Most of it was down below. But the second day when the planes went up to go bombing uh, the heavier payloads, all those planes just disappeared from the radar. And to this day, not a single one of the pilots or crew has ever been heard from. On that same day, the craft, these dish-shaped craft came up out of the water and they were able to part the water. So they are controlling the gravity field around the craft and then confronted the armada. They tried to shoot these craft down. They couldn't even get near it. It had some kind of force field that wouldn't allow any projectile to get through. <clears throat> and in a show of force, they destroyed one ship, just one ship, sliced it in half with a laser, which we would call uh, maybe Tesla's death ray or directed energy weapon today. Still technology in 1946 that is really so far advanced, it, it boggles the mind. And Admiral Byrd even said so much when he was on the return trip, two months into the six month high jump expedition, they headed back. And he told a reporter who was on board the ship briefly from a Chilean newspaper that uh, we would be confronted with an enemy that can fly pole to pole at incredible speeds. And, and look, Robert, we know about directed energy weapons now, but as far as crafts that can fly pole to pole at incredible speeds, uh, probably just not being told about it, but it's certainly nothing that is being advertised in our militaries right now. Yeah, except the, the, it reminds me of those Navy videos that came out, you know, like the, 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 the gimbal, the go fast and the tic tac. They're all three separate different UFO incidents. But if you look into like the Nimitz encounter, and I've talked about this countlessly on my on my podcast, they leading up to that day, you know, Commander Fravor and his crew, they were seeing hundreds of different UFOs. So I think unless this is just what the military is telling us, you, it's hard to disseminate. You know, you don't know what's true, but he they said they were seeing hundreds of different UFOs. Then all of a sudden, you know, they had the Tic Tac encounter. But it makes me think, like, how much of that's theirs? How much of that's ours? What's ET? What's not? You know, it's so hard to know, you know? But so hard to know. But now with uh, new information coming out of the uh, breakup of the Soviet Union, a whole lot of information, a treasure trove of UFO-related material came out in the early 1990s. If you were to show up in Moscow with a suitcase of hard currency, anything other than rubles, <laughs> you could get people to go into the Kremlin and bring you out secrets. That was happening quite regularly. And part of those secrets were what had happened in Antarctica. And so this narrative that I'm talking of is largely from the uh, declassified and bought material, as well as a documentary that the Russians actually did some years later, and you can still see it on YouTube. You got to read the uh, subtitles, but it played in Russia as a nonfiction account of what happened to the Nazis down in Antarctica. So just a little timeline. So officially VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, occurred in May 45, right? Yeah. The last battle of the war was won by the Nazis and it was a submarine war in the North Atlantic. They left Admiral Dolenz behind uh, to surrender German armed forces, 
but the Third Reich and the SS never surrendered, nor were the several hundred U-boats that have never been accounted for. Wow. And presumably were heading south with Adolf Hitler himself, Eva Braun, and the money man, Martin Bormann. And I do describe quite a bit of that in this book. So then Operation High Jump occurs with craft that can fly pole to pole at incredible speeds. The U.S. loses battle number two. This is kind of post-World War II, but it's still part of World War II. And then you had the flyover in D.C. in 52. And those are those craft that can fly pole to pole at incredible speeds. They penetrated our most secretive, most sensitive airspace in this country with impunity. And we couldn't do anything about it. So it was at that point, the Dulles brothers, who were Nazi sympathizers, as well as Prescott Bush, the father to George Herbert Walker and his grandson, George W. Bush, were Nazi sympathizers. And with their pull in the CIA, it was a deal was struck with the Nazis, who were the Fourth Reich at this point. And that's what Argus was all about. Even though we struck a deal with them, it certainly pinched a nerve in our military and they wanted to get revenge. Well, can I ask you this? Do you think that was when they came over and they kind of took control of our media? Because that's how Dan Willis talks about it. Well, absolutely. Did they... Uh, Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I'm going to have him on to talk more about that. But can I ask you this? What are your favorite things besides that that you cover in Beyond Esoteric? Because we got into it a lot. And I was a lot of my questions are on sacred places, but I know it's a new book. I wanted you to to tell the readers what what do you think are the best things in it that you like the most? Well, I love talking about these kind of subjects. Uh, It starts out with a section on fascism, the new fascism. And this is where a lot of the Nazi history comes into play and how it has infected the United States through Project Paperclip, which I'm sure your listeners yeah. are well aware of. Goes into MK Ultra, uh, Big Brother, which is that old uh, saying from George Orwell's 1984, how that's all coming true here. He'd be rolling over in his grave if he saw what was going on here. And then it goes into two more sections, the embargo, the truth embargo, and a lot of these subjects I really hold near and dear to my heart. And this is um, basically how the whole UFO cover-up has also affected this country and the world. Um, many things that have been withheld from us, such as our human origins. Um, yeah, and I go into and the they, elongated they, skulls. That goes into the elongated skulls in the Nephilim, right? Like, did they just yep. find those elongated skulls in Peru or did they find some in Egypt as well? Well, they have been found in Egypt, around the Black Sea, all the way out in uh, East Asia. But the largest concentration is in Paracas, Peru, where they actually even have a graveyard of all elongated skulls and a museum in Paracas, Peru, that displays uh, dozens of these elongated skulls. And as I show in uh, the image section at the back of suppressed human origins, um, there are ginormous heads. And I've seen them. You can go into the uh, Sacred Valley of Peru, where I went uh, on tour, and saw some of these big bad boys. And these things are massive. I mean, look at the size of the cranium there. It's it's over, in many cases, 30% larger than ours. So it just 
is this whole big section back here. And you can cranial deform in many different ways with a board, with wrapping, cranial you can do board, a lot yeah. of things, cranial deformation. But what you cannot do is add 30% mass, 30% larger brain, 30% cranial capacity. You, you cannot add that much skull and brain by doing cranial deformation. Plus these elongated skulls show quite a bit of evidence that they are not homo sapien. Uh, the most obvious when you see them on display is they have no uh, central suture, that, that crack that goes right up and over our head. These elongated skulls don't have them. Plus their eye sockets are also about 30% bigger and the connection to their spine is also 30% bigger. So I guess what we're saying here, Robert, when you have a head that's 30% larger, you're probably gonna have a body that's 30% larger too. And is now we're talking- or this ancient builder race like, of the mega There you go, structures? exactly. And so that's why these elongated skulls have been so marginalized. I think they were also found here in this country. In fact, many giants were found in the earthen mounds in North America. By the serpent mounds, right? In Ohio, then they find the giants by the built, 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 excuse me, all found by mound building sites, right? Like right, they were giants, yeah. I, Cause I, Marzoli correct. goes into that, LA a little bit. He goes into he the, sure yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. Um, let me pull up my question, questions here and see what, oh, I was gonna ask you out of like all the sacred sites that you've traveled to, Oh, oh, here, shout out a picture. There's the mound sites. Yep. Oh, I love those mound sites. Yeah, I've never been to them, but I live close to them. I live in Pennsylvania. I'd love to go to the oh. Serpent Mound in Ohio. Oh, yeah. And you got the Hopewell and the Adena cultures in Ohio and as well as uh, West Virginia. So a day trip away, you could be at some of these really mind-blowing earthen mound sites. One of my books in the, the Sacred Places series is called Sacred Places North America. And I go into uh, great detail about some of the best mound sites, including of course, Serpent Mound. But there's another one in Ohio called Newark, which is now a golf course, but you can still walk the, the mounds and they create these perfect geometric shapes, including an octagon that is like a Stonehenge that you can still tell the seasons, the um, equinoxes and the solstices, these were calendars that could precisely tell the time of year. Also, do you think that they were um, looking for possible cataclysms? You know, like shifts in the sky that might have been irregular that might tell them, okay, we might need to head to the caves for a little bit because something weird might happen, like a geomagnetic like burst or something like that? Well, I'm not sure that these could really tell that kind of time because that would be sort of separate from the cycles of the, the earth. Yeah. But the, the science that studies it is called archaeoastronomy. And it's shown that the ancients, not only in this country with the medicine wheels and the mound sites, including the serpent mound also has quite a few uh, astronomical sightings associated with the design but also in Europe, all the megaliths. And I did a book called Sacred Places Europe and many, many trips over there to dozens of countries and went to all these megalith sites, including on the dates 
that the sunlight would shine through some of these megaliths or uh, light up in the case of Newgrange, Ireland, a triple spiral motif in the deepest recess of Newgrange. Now that's no coincidence. Yeah, that, that is. Happen that, that, on only those days around the winter solstice. That's amazing. It and really is. Uh, Freddie Silva just did a book on Scotland too, where he goes into like, there's a, they have like the circle of Stennis and, an, and some megalithic structures over there too. Um, it's, it's amazing. Do you think this ancient builder race was like what we would call the Anunnaki, like, or, or like maybe they were like, a, cause they were like a brotherhood that came here. We don't know where from. I'm not going to say that cause we have no clue, but kind of that helped spread civilization after the flood and like, maybe build these megalithic sites? What do you think? I, I would agree that there is quite a bit of technology that we're still playing catch up to try to understand how they were able to move such massive stones and then fit them together so precisely. And, and just think about this, how as an adult, you could pick up a cinder block, but a little kid cannot pick up a cinder block. So the bigger you are and the stronger you are, perhaps the easier it would be to move around some of these giant megalithic stones. I'm not saying that the Anunnaki were bench pressing megaliths, <laughs> probably had some kind of technology at their disposal, as well as a bunch of human servants who would help them and take their orders and do what they wanted to build some of these structures around the world. Because I'll tell you, Bindu, Great Pyramid, Sacsayhuaman, Angkor Wat, and, and many others. And, and they're just so inescapable of words, how these things were built on such a scale that they are built. What's and, the and, energy like at those spices? Like, can you, is it like a complete different energy shift? Do you feel it? Like, do you feel like, do you know what I mean? Is it? Oh like yeah, you really do. And that's why I encourage people when they uh, read my Sacred Places books, I encourage them to go to these locations and, and it, hopefully get there when there's not a huge crowd or go there if you can by yourself or with your friends and just sit and meditate and just listen. For me, a lot of times the story came as I was just there, sometimes just by myself, exploring around in quieter hours. Uh, such as the case out at Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. And that too has astronomical alignments with the largest uh, uh, house built one, there. One thing the I wanted to ask you about that's a, that's a modern marvel that you wrote about in your book is um, the Coral Castle. Um, yeah. I think that's amazing that that guy somehow got those megalithic. That's a modern day example of megalithic building, right? You know what? It's the only modern megalithic construction in the last 200 years built by one little 99 pound uh typical weakling as we would call him with you remember charles atlas the guy who lifted weights when he got yeah. the stand kicked on him and then he came back and and fought the guy who tormented him that was this little guy from latvia called edley scalen and he was uh rebuffed on a marriage proposal and he built this coral castle as a memory to his sweet 16 is what he called the 16 year old bride he should have married. And she never did come over to see him. She never saw the coral castle, but he persisted and he quarried, removed 
<clears throat> and moved these megalithic stones, some is weighing over 33 tons. These things were massive. I've been there and, and seen it. And he would, he would also, he was able to balance some of them in such a way that a kid could just touch it and the giant megalith would spin open as a door. Wow, that's amazing. Well, incredible. Yeah, incredible technology and know-how. And, and the only, he wouldn't give away his secrets. He wouldn't tell how he built it. The only clue he gave is that he knew the secrets of how they built the Great Pyramid in Egypt. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. I, I wonder I wonder what it could have been. Maybe something to do sound and vibration, maybe? That's what I suspect, auditive levitation. But when he passed away, they found a, a hidden basement area with all kinds of contraptions and devices. And some little kid spied on him at night. He would always move the boulders in the middle of the night, which is also rather curious. And he had some kind of wand that he would use to do it. So perhaps he knew how to manipulate matter through sound, auditive levitation. That's amazing. That story is so amazing. That's a fun story. Which book is that in? That's in Sacred Places, North America. That book sounds awesome. That sounds like a real cool book. But now out of all the, um, out of all the places that you traveled to in your, your career as an adventurer, explorer, author, you know, researcher, what would you say your, your best sites to go to would be? Or were the ones your most memorable ones? Well, of course, the ones I just mentioned, uh, the Sacred Valley, Cusco and Peru, Machu Picchu. That is the highest concentration of megaliths in the world. And then thrown in for good measure are the museums where you can see the elongated skulls. Uh, the temples of Angkor, in Cambodia are really second to none, really the best ruins in Southeast Asia. But really the granddaddy of them all are the, the pyramids in Egypt, uh, as well as the other megalithic sites throughout the country of Egypt, which is really the Osirian Empire, which was the legacy of the survivors of Atlantis, brought their technology with them after that continental landmass was largely sunken into the ocean and the survivors who came ashore uh, brought their know-how and built the first pyramids, those being the Giza pyramids. So here you have a real discrepancy in history, whereas the very first pyramids, the oldest pyramids, the great pyramids are the finest constructed and then there are dozens of other pyramid sites in Egypt. Some are little more than just mounds of gravel. You wouldn't even know that at one time they were a pyramid. And then the Bent Pyramid, the Red Pyramid, and all these other ones, Saqqara, Step Pyramid, that are so much less perfected than the Great Pyramids, which were the, really the first one built. I know uh, Egyptologists would say the Fourth Dynasty, but... Um, it's with Kufu. the they weather dating right? on the I'm sorry. Yeah, they're they're way older. Yeah, that's what I thought. Because like, um, now it said that gives some credence to the Emerald Tablets of Thoth if you think about it. Like, because in it he says he built the pyramids, and then he says like his father, which would I think would have been Anki. I'm just you know speculating. Tells him to go into the land of Chem and raise the hairy barbarians to the light. 
And then he goes and then the story unfolds from there. You know, he lands and he has to hit them with a ray to control them because they don't know they try to attack him. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, Billy. It has some credence. Like, I mean, because here's the, the one thing about the Emerald Tablets of Thought that's interesting. Like, there's an Emerald Tablet of Hermes, all right? That's in a museum. But the Emerald Tablets of Thought have never really been found, I don't think. I don't think they've actually, you know, ever yeah, been. not that I know of. Yeah. Um, so Carson just... did a book on it. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, they have what was written on those tablets, and that's open to interpretation, what that all means. And many authors have uh, have gone by those inscriptions and interpreted them, but yeah, it's it's pretty elusive, right? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> Let me see if I had any other questions. Um, uh, oh, I, I wanted to get your your thoughts on since we were talking about elongated skulls. This is one of the last questions I have. I don't want to take up too much of your time because you cover um, Lloyd Pye, not 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 as much Lloyd Pye, but the Star Child skull in one of your books, don't you? Oh yeah, for sure. He's uh, pictured right in Beyond Esoteric in the Suppressed Human Origins chapter. And the reason I call it uh, Human Origins is because the star child, and there he is, that's what he would look like. It's an alien, basically. Comparison of, yeah, of a human skull behind the star child skull. Once again, way larger cranial capacity than uh, a normal human and Lloyd Pye actually had acquired that skull and was traveling around to conferences and showing it unfortunately it was a little before my time and Lloyd Pye has passed away but he certainly popularized this whole notion of hybrid human with alien and that's what the DNA has panned out not only with the star child but with the elongated skulls that many of them were born of human women who were impregnated by an unknown DNA source. And isn't that exactly what it says in the Bible, that these men of renown saw the earth women and saw that they were fair and mated with them. And an example that I give, and I do a talk at conferences about uh, giants and the elongated skulls, is... Look at how uh, a horse and a donkey can mate and have a mule as an offspring, a totally different species. Now, the mule is going to be sterile and can't have offspring of his own, but there you have it. Maybe that's what the star child was, was just a, a sterile hybrid between humans and some kind of extraterrestrial. So yeah. it shows that there's the mitochondrial DNA that comes from the mother's side very much human, but an unknown patriarchal DNA from the father's side. Rather intriguing how it lines up with what is written about in the Bible. Yeah, and that makes me want to speculate. Do you think that like they were doing this, they were mating to uh, just continue on humanity after the flood? Because after the flood, there was probably a lot of people wiped out, right? So maybe they were just mating, or but, but then they say they would, did that to wipe out the giants. So it's so unclear which way you know it was you when you know what would you think they they did it to what do you yeah, think probably just enjoying sex and found <laughs> earth women to be hot you know uh, drinking some wine the uh, bacchus of the greeks uh, why not well said <laughs> Party, man. 
Thanks. Well said. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, can you tell everybody where to find your stuff and all that? And, and uh... Yeah, sure. If you wanted to uh, check out Beyond Esoteric or Future or Modern Esoteric, the other two in the series, uh, or the Sacred Places books, you can go to cccpublishing.com. That's uh, the website for the publishing company that I run. And all the books of mine that go out through that website, I'll sign copies for people. Otherwise, you can, you can go to your local bookstore. I'd recommend that over the big box stores or the uh, online retailer named after a South American rainforest to uh, support the little guys, what I'm saying. Uh, and if your local bookstore doesn't have it, they can order it within days. We've got a great distributor that can get the uh, books out to them real quick. If you want to know more about me and uh, some of the conferences I'll be speaking at, which is about a half a dozen in 2022, you can go to bradolson.com. That's and, awesome. Uh, speaking at a real big one in Sedona, Arizona in about a month for the spring equinox and uh, discount code is bradolson10 and you can get 10% off. And I think they're Still have some tickets left. That one will sell out, as will most all of the other ones. Uh, people are really happy that the conferences are coming back. And thank God, we're not yeah, seeing the speakers you know, talk live. Yeah, I'm so happy. I'm, I'm so happy for. Maybe I'll see you at one of them if I can ever get a day off work. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, well, they, sure. I hope so, Robert. You should come on out and uh, join the fun. Those conferences are really great. I, and I love sitting in on other speakers and learning and asking questions and commingling myself. I mean, this is really a learning experience for all of us. Yeah. There's so much material out there. It just would fill volume. So good yeah. to be there. It's kind of like uh, binge watching YouTube videos for a weekend straight, but you're watching them all live. So that's awesome. That, yeah, that is cool. Well, thanks, Brad. We have to do this again. I'll get a hold of you. Yeah, you bet, Robert. You're a great host, and uh, anytime you want to have me back on, we'll uh, we'll do it again. There's still so much more we can talk about. That's awesome. Th thanks, man. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Thanks.